Silicone-containing breast implants have had a long and storied life. Has the pendulum swung back to clinical acceptability? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Bruce Friedman. Dr. Friedman is the Medical Director of Plastic Surgery Associates of Northern Virginia. He is certified by the American Board of Plastic Surgery and is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and the American Society for Laser Medicine and Surgery. He continues to perform research and lectures nationally on the latest developments in cosmetic surgery. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me on your show, Leslie. Uh, So, Bruce, tell us, uh, maybe give us a quick uh, history lesson in silicone implants. Silicone implants have been used for cosmetic breast enhancement since the early 1960s. That gives us over 40 years of use uh, in, in the medical profession. And when I started my practice in the 1980s, the, the standard for my practice was to use silicone-filled uh, implants. Silicone itself was more of a free-floating fluid, uh, although it was more gelatinous in nature. And uh, I was able to use these until the early 1990s when the FDA decided that a moratorium needed to be placed on the use of silicone implants because they felt that more study needed to be done for the long-term problems and effects of silicone on the human body. So from 1990 up until uh, around 2000, 2001, silicone was banned in the United States for use in uh, breast implants. And then in 2000 or 2001, the FDA allowed certain investigators to use them on a case-by-case basis, and I was fortunate enough to be one of those FDA investigators where they tracked every one of our patients. After the FDA was satisfied that some of the concerns about silicone safety were kind of unwarranted or unfounded, they were, the FDA released silicone uh, for general use in uh, late 2006, and now people can use silicone gel-filled implants for all sorts of cosmetic and reconstructive breast procedures. Now, the silicone is a little different than it was back in the 1980s when I started my practice. The silicone gel is cross-linked, which makes it more gummy. And in the kind of lay literature, some people call it the gummy bear implant. <laughs> but the, uh, the silicone itself does not flow freely, as I mentioned the early silicone had. And if you take a knife and cut a silicone breast implant in half, it will generally stay intact, much like a gummy bear. So that, I think that's given uh, physicians a lot more confidence and comfort knowing that the silicone gel will stay in place and there will be very little, if any, migration of silicone into the body were the implant to rupture. What other choices are available now besides these gummy bear implants? Well, currently, saline-filled implants or saltwater-filled implants are also available. And during that long period of time when the silicone implants were not available in the United States, women were relegated to using saltwater-filled or saline-filled breast implants for breast augmentation or reconstruction. It's interesting that there was a lot of uh, interest in developing other sorts of implants, for example, implants filled with soy bean oil or peanut oil, but those never uh, were able to make it through FDA approval. So... We are now currently left with the saline or saltwater-filled implant and the silicone-filled implant, and I think there are pros and cons to each of them. Which are what? Well, I think for the uh, saline implant, uh, we know that if an implant leaks and there's about a 3 to 5% chance of, of leakage for a saline implant, basically through a, a valve leak or maybe a kind of a wall defect, then the person really just notices a deflation and there's only salt water that just 
spilled into the body. So some people feel that they're more comfortable with that from a safety issue. Uh, there's less cost associated with the saline implants. There's also the ability to place the implant through a much smaller incision, usually only two to three centimeters in width, so that's only an inch. The disadvantages of saline are that you have a higher percentage of rippling along the sides because saline doesn't quite have the viscosity of silicone. And generally speaking, it's preferable to put the saline implants retropectoral or below the pectoralis muscle so you have additional coverage of that saline implant by the pectoralis muscle, thus giving the appearance of a, or the feel of a little more natural tissue. So you have more padding, so to speak. Uh, that can be helpful in some cases, but some of the limitations are that in some patients who have sagging breast artosis, sometimes putting the implants under the muscle can cause a double bubble effect. And so, you know, there's, again, as I mentioned, pros and cons between using saline. The advantages of using the silicone implant are that silicone, by its very nature, tends to be a little more natural feeling. Silicone has four times the viscosity of salt water, so the implant's going to feel more natural and, and more like, like flesh. The uh, silicone implant, in most cases, can be placed above or below the, the muscle. And when you put the implant above the muscle or just underneath the breast gland itself, you'll have less pain and discomfort because you're not cutting the muscle, so you'll have a quicker recovery. It also can be advantageous, again, in some patients with a little more breast tissue because then you don't get this kind of double bubble effect of the breast tissue sitting in a different location than the implant. Silicone implant, however, requires a larger incision to place it because it's not as deformable as the saline implant, and there is more associated cost with the silicone implant because the manufacturers had to charge more to make up for all of the regulatory issues involved with getting silicone to the market. When silicone was first reintroduced, you know, at the, at the end of 2006, obviously the majority of patients were using saline implants. Now, statistically, it looks like about 30 or 28 to 30 percent of patients have returned to silicone, and this is based on some information I received from one of the major manufacturers just this week, and that seems to play out in our practice also. So we are seeing a, re a recovery or a resurgence or reemergence of the silicone implant in, in society. There are some interesting points that uh, the implant manufacturers would like to talk to the patients about, and that is that they recommend an MRI, for example, to follow possibility of a rupture in, in patients with silicone implants. This would be uh, compared to just using a mammogram or an ultrasound in patients with the saline implants to look for integrity. A routine MRI? Well, they're, you know, they're recommending uh, at least an MRI three years after the uh, procedure is performed, uh -huh. you know, and that's uh, as a baseline. On the other hand, you know, no one can make a patient have an MRI, and, we, and you and I both know that the best way to track any sort of breast issues are by self-examination and observation. But the, I think the manufacturers are trying to, you know, comply with FDA concerns, and there's no question that to get a three-dimensional look at an implant, an MRI is the best way to do so. So I think that might be a little controversial as the manufacturers recommend that, but most patients don't proceed with that. Fortunately, the incidence of rupture in silicone implants is quite low. I guess you really haven't been using these new implants long enough to know how patients are going to react three years down the road. Is, is there anything else that you think or the manufacturer is recommending that we do in terms of long-term follow-up for these patients? 
as I mentioned before, the manufacturers are recommending that patients, in addition to self-exam, undergo an MRI three years after the surgery just to assess the condition. Uh, And then I believe they're asking the patients to voluntarily just follow with routine mammographic uh, examination after that. That's probably the best way to go. There's no doubt that the average primary care physician is going to see more and more silicone implants in patients. I mean, just a couple years ago, over 300,000 women had breast augmentation in the United States alone. Now we're going to see many of those women with silicone implants. And I think that uh, because of all the controversy that occurred in the 1990s, it really behooves all physicians uh, who are involved with primary and specialty care to understand you know, what's going on with the silicone uh, situation. Any special words to the primary care docs that are going to be seeing these women or the OB-GYNs long-term? Well, I think that uh, they have to be cognizant of the fact that there's never been a study to show that patients who have breast augmentations have an increased instance of breast cancer. Nevertheless, women with breast implants will still develop lumps and masses, some of which will be malignant. So it's uh, important to maintain self-examination and adequate protocols And I think it's also important for the primary care physicians to let the patients return to the plastic surgeons if uh, an abnormality turns up. So three or four times a year, I will get phone calls from previous patients saying that they have a small mass or a lump and they'd like me to help evaluate it. And then in consultation with the primary care physician, we can plan more evaluation and definitive treatment. Clearly, some of the new advances in stereotactic identification and removal of masses has been helpful because it will decrease the chance of injuring the implants. So that's where I work with the primary care physicians, some of the um, specialized general surgeons, uh, and, the, and the radiologists to help treat these naturally occurring problems that will uh, take place in the breast augmentation population. Mm-hmm. Anything else that we need to think about in following these patients over the long run? I, I really don't think so. I think a lot of the Concerns about silicone were addressed and issue, and and the issues were uh, approached properly in a scientific fashion. I do not believe that anyone has demonstrated an increased incidence of chronic fatigue syndrome or collagen vascular disease in the patients with silicone implants, and that was, of course, some of the major controversy. Although I still think it's prudent to recommend that patients think carefully about having breast augmentation if they have a strong family history of of malignancy, breast malignancy, or if they have connective tissue diseases because, you know, any foreign body or any irritation or inflammation could trigger uh, a recurrence or an exacerbation of a collagen vascular disease. So I, I think that there are some groups of women who should be counseled against breast augmentation if they have specific family histories for breast malignancy or collagen vascular disease. And that, of course, that's just my opinion. Dr. Friedman, so I think what you're saying then is that much of the hubbub about silicone in years gone by really was scientifically unfounded. That's correct. And yet, nevertheless, as I mentioned before, there are certain segments of the population that should be counseled about breast augmentation if they have family histories of the autoimmune diseases or maybe very strong histories of breast cancer because, again, with an implant, it may be harder to, uh, to perform self-examination. Mm-hmm. How about in terms of age? What's the youngest uh, age that, that's prudent? Well, that's a very good question because there's a lot more interest in cosmetic surgery in the teenage population right now. 
generally speaking, I would prefer to operate on patients who are of majority, 18 years or older, for cosmetic enhancement. Of course, saying that, I'll be honest, I believe that I've operated on two or three women who are late 17, almost 18, who've had very strong parental support and consent for reasons of self-esteem or timing issues uh, regarding breast augmentation. The oldest patients that I've done breast augmentation on are in the mid to late 50s. Wow. So women still are you know, interested in that, and, and those are especially seen in women who maybe lost a spouse or been divorced and are going through life changes. Again, reflecting the fact that cosmetic enhancement can improve quality of life and self-esteem in certain patients. Well, thank you so much, Bruce. I appreciate your time today. Well, thank you for having me. We've been discussing silicone breast implants and uh, breast augmentation in general. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.